Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that our government is shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. Like, oh, here we go, Mark. Off again with you. Mark being Mark again. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's the thing about podcasts is when you're on the air, and it's like therapy, you know? If I can't talk to my family about this stuff, I'll talk to you, Matt, and all our listeners. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Matt? to Plato, and from Plato to all of the Western world, the story of Atlantis rings like a finely tuned tintinabulum tunneled into our collective thalamus, drifting the unattentive back into slumber while activating the waking to connect the fractured dots who've lost their place in our collective memory. From mislaid or misunderstood megaliths to myths that miss the mainstream medley known as accepted history. From the automatic writings of Frederick Spencer Oliver to the entranced Akashic readings of Edgar Cayce, Atlantis is here, waiting to be figured into the grand tapestry of Earth's many sagas of civilizations rising and falling. Could the remnants of Atlantis have been sought out and seized by the narrative-crafting cabal? Well, if so, it's not too late. Today's guest is one great mind turning our attention back to reclaiming our lost ancient legacy. Here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, Michael Laflemme joins me, Mystic Mark, to discuss his latest book, Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Legacy. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Michael Laflemme. As a historian, like, I'm aware of the critique of, well, how, how, where are you getting this high technology flying machines and all of this as applies to Atlantis? And the key to that was Casey but also a person that came before Edgar Cayce, which is the weirdest source in the book, the Frederick Oliver, who's a 17-year-old kid living on the California frontier in 1881, who 
himself was not an Egyptologist, an expert in any of these subjects. He was a 17-year-old miner living under Mount Shasta who claimed to have been told through Claire audience to write another person's past life in the year 11,160 B.C. on the principal Atlantean island of Poside. And it becomes a 400-page book that's never published in his lifetime called A Dweller on Two Planets that he never made money off that kind of ruined his own reputation in town. People thought he was a weirdo. His family thought he was weird. He gained nothing from it. And yet, again, when most people talk about that book, they've never read it. I read that book 10 times, every word of it 10 times to make sure everything I said about that. And, you know, it has like a whole chapter in my book because if you read his account of what life was like in 11,160 BC, and then you follow how he describes basically the same plot as the feature franchise Star Wars. All right, ladies and gentlemen, here we are on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast, and I am stoked to have this guest on for the first time. He is Amazon's best-selling author in the category that I forgot, but you'll know pretty quickly because it's a great book. We're going to be spending a ton of time talking about it today. I have with me the great Michael Laflemme joining us to talk about his book, Visions of Atlantis. Michael, welcome to the show, man. Your book is excellent. I read it. I really liked it. I like the, the, the direction you took with the material. But before we get to that, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Tell the audience maybe mm. what, what brought you to, to write such an awesome book. Well, thank you. I really... I appreciate that. It's always weird when, you know, you spend seven years writing and researching a book and then, you know, a complete stranger tells you they enjoyed it. You know, it's, it's a weird feeling. I still don't take it for granted. So I really appreciate that. But, you know, I was just a regular, you know, adjunct professor of history and philosophy for about 13 years in Chicago at different universities. And I guess about eight years ago, I was in a bookstore and I stumbled upon The Antediluvian World by Ignatius Donnelly. And, you know, like most people, I was familiar kind of tangentially with the idea of Atlantis or a lost civilization before the time of the Ice Age. And But when I read that book, I was really shocked at how not just sophisticated his, you know, 19th century analysis was, you know, writing just a few years after they even discovered the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. And for him to put together the kind of story that he put together, albeit incomplete because of just the limitations of his own time, I thought, you know, this is interesting. And it got me reading other books, which led me inevitably to looking at, well, what did some remote viewers and clairvoyance say about this topic. And, you know, I was a pretty, I'm not going to say skeptical materialist type person. I mean, I was, I've been on both sides of the debate, you know, I have a lot of respect for religious people, spiritual people, but I also, you know, professionally from my master's degree studied, you know, critiques of religion and the enlightenment and had, you know, had one ready to go for any of my friends in my early twenties, you know, 
so I could kind of see it from both angles, you know, and I wanted to write a book that, you know, explained like, instead of just saying Edgar Casey or another, you know, clairvoyant said the following, I really wanted to show, well, what did contemporaries of these people who live with them or in the case of Edgar Casey, who's probably the most studied and documented psychic in probably the world, if I had to guess, you know, with 15,000 typewritten transcripts of all his readings, affidavits, medical professionals studying him while he's in a trance state, and then corroborating evidence, you know, because the majority of his 15,000 readings have nothing to do with Atlantis. They have to do with medical readings, finding mineral deposits, missing persons, things like this. And I really wanted to show kind of like in a mini biographical way, the origins of, you know, clairvoyant visions, if you will, of this subject and focus on the first people who really use that ability and, you know, touch on a few of the later clairvoyants who maybe could have been influenced by say movies, popular culture, but I wanted to see who were the first people to ever talk about this subject And then let's go also back to from pre-Platonic sources to today and kind of show people before you get to the clairvoyant evidence, probably halfway through the book, chapter two, what does the historical record itself say? And then what took me so long was just piecing together where that evidence actually linked up with more esoteric evidence. And then also adding, you know, where does archaeological, where do new archaeological discoveries, oceanographic discoveries, cultural things that people might not have noticed, where do they all point? And to my great surprise, over time, like a very coherent vision, you know, if you will, of this ancient culture emerged. It was just very difficult to to piece together because I had to go through, you know, seven or eight different professional fields and become kind of like a amateur expert in, you know, oceanography for two years to really see, okay, is this a legitimate, you know, bathythermic scan and, you know, call an oceanographic institute and say like, Hey, is this really true? Did you really find this at this time? And, you know, interview a few witnesses of strange objects that were found in strange places. And so what emerged was really, you know, at the same time, a historiography, I guess, as we would call it in the professional field, like how the history itself was written, because it changes, as you know, over time, you know, the history of World War II is very different after the war than it was in the 70s than it is today. We look at things as time goes on very differently. And it was definitely the case with a subject that's at least 2,400 years old. If you go back to Plato in his, you know, dialogues, that's a long time. And I wanted to show people how, not just how the majority of people thought it was real and still think it's real. And there's just a handful of these, you know, ideological debunkers who claim to, you know, be more intelligent than Plato, Michel de Montaigne, um, Francis Bacon, you know, oh, that's a pretty tall order. You can be smarter than me. That's fine. But we should probably pay attention to the ancients who built civilization when they say that this was real and that it was destroyed in a cataclysm. And I think the kind of strength of the book was, you know, that 
I never really told people what to think. I, I really detest authors who have a strong conviction about anything. I, I've never liked authors that tell you from page one, Atlantis was true and let me show you. You know, I really took a very skeptical approach and I said, look, when I write this, if it turns out to all just be, you know, an allegory or mythological story, that's fine. It'll still make for a great book to show how that myth evolved. But to my great surprise, there actually was an overabundance of evidence suggesting that this indeed was real and was utterly destroyed, you know, at the end of the last ice age, as Graham Hancock and many others have, you know, proposed so that's the kind of, I guess, impetus for, for why I wanted to do it. But yeah, I guess <laughs> there I you know. go. That, that answers your question. Yeah, it does. And it gives me a great opportunity to share my impetus for reading and finding your book outside of hosting a podcast where I talk to interesting folks like yourself. You might be aware Anybody who's on social media or YouTube has probably seen these videos. There's a growing contingency of people talking about this old world that borders on hysteria and sensationalism and the World's Fair were a complete, you know, oh. cover up of, of, of this vastly forgotten oh, yes. civilization. Tartaria. And I, I, I just I just was crusading in the sense, not against it. Because I'm, you know, against open-minded thought. I think it's fascinating, to be honest. But as a fellow New Englander, you can relate. We're from a place where there's 400 more years of written history and buildings, construction, records, and things like that. So I, I just really immediately got red flags and alarm bells when I started seeing the Tartaria thing. And I started looking... It's so funny... Go ahead. It's go so ahead. funny. And I don't mean to interrupt. It's so funny because you're one of the first people in many interviews I've done to bring up that. And it's so funny because I was just talking about this with a friend and, and the importance of, you know, good scholarship. And, and I, I have a friend who he's a great person, open minded person. And I said, you know, just be careful because there's this whole other generation i call them like tiktok historians you know and it's very easy to crowbar like you said a tunnel under a temple and then you know and i've i've said for many times if mud flood didn't rhyme i feel like the entire movement would lose impetus i feel like that's like 90 percent of the appeal is mud like the actual like rhyme of the word because it's actually much more likely that what we're talking about, which is a, you know, cataclysmic comet strike or similar catastrophe for which there's a lot of evidence and not just evidence. There's a lot of cultural stories that describe that the Egyptians themselves said that, and they identified the date, you know, of the end of the last ice age accurately in the year 360, you know, or actually in the year 560 BC, roughly when Solon got the story. So it's like, you know, when people look at newspapers from 1901 and they say, well, this is when the reset took place because, you know, mud was falling in New Zealand. It's like, I mean, you know, maybe there was a mud flood or local thing, but it's like the whole world's fair. And this and that. I, I it's really funny you said that because 
I think people will be surprised as a person who wrote a book on clairvoyant visions of Atlantis that I have extreme doubts about. Well, and if I, if I could just flood uh, phenomenon, I'm with you. And it's a big reason why I wanted to talk to you about this. And maybe I'm, I'm a conspiracy theorist, uh, more than I am an ancient historian, but I thought as I started learning more and more about Tartaria that this must be some sort of attempt at co-opting this new movement. And it's not that new, but it's gaining sure. steam, especially with folks like Graham Hancock, love him or hate right. him. It's gaining right. steam and people are turning their attention towards the old world more than ever before. And particularly yeah. here in America, there's been a cover up of things like mounds, the advancement yep. of indigenous cultures and their connection to this ancient culture that fell victim to a cataclysm. So it's almost like right. they're they're erasing all this time in between and saying, no, no, no. The cataclysm happened only a couple hundred years ago. Forget everything else. It's all made by right. the devil, you know, or it's all made by right. the Masons. And, and it's like, right. what are we talking about here, folks? There's this whole history to be uncovered of Atlantis, Lemuria, and beyond. Maybe yeah. Tartaria existed in Russia, but as far as America goes, I think right. the conversation well, and, and needs and to be Atlantis. The, and, and, well, and that's the thing. It's like I told my friend, I said, the the idea that that a that the, the Tartars, who I learned about in mainstream Russian history class, like <laughs> the Tartars, the Cossacks, the Alans, like all these steppe tribes, it's like no one's disputing that there was a region called Tartaria, just like there was a region called Kazaria where Ukraine is like nobody's debating that, but it's like, what the hell does finding a tunnel under a building in Seattle have to do with the Tartarian steppe plains of Russia? I still am confused about that. And, you know, what would cause, you know, not to waste any more of your listeners, time, but it's like, what would cause the mud you know, it would have to be a cataclysm on par with what documented, you know, historical records say took place 12,000 years ago. You know, it, it's not like, oh, they had electricity and this church was actually a power plant. It's like, OK, well, you know, how come Ben Franklin didn't know that? Then? Right. Right. I mean, really, like it's it, like there's I just read a biography of Ben Franklin. It's like. So if he was living concurrently with Tartaria, why did he have to do electrical experiments? Yeah. You know, like it's, it's like if they, if they could send telegrams from London to New York and Philly, it's like, then why did it take them, you know, a month to learn that the revolutionary war was breaking out? If, if we were indeed in Tartarian times, you know, it's like, right. that's almost just as silly as people to me who categorically deny the possibility of an antediluvian civilization, you know, because right. we don't have any evidence, which is absurd, you know? And I always use the example of, you know, Troy, like people for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years believed the city of Troy was, you know, a fictional city that the Trojan war never happened. It was just a Greek, you know, tragedy and, you know, and then they dug it up and then they found King Priam's tomb, you know? And it's like, Okay. And then somebody said, you know, when, of course, Graham Hancock became quite popular in the mid 90s. Oh, this is just a bunch of horse shit. There's no evidence. And then, you know, Gobekli Tepe gets dug up and it's exactly the date 
he puts and other ancient, you know, sources put for the end of this cataclysmic age. And it's like, then they find Gunung Padang and it's possibly 27,000 years old and on and on and on. And I think, I'm not sure. It could be. I mean, there's evidence that, what's his name? The MK Ultra programmer, Aquino, a Satanist in the 80s, was tasked, according to one anecdotal, I think there is a declassified record that can prove this, that he was tasked with seeing how many people you can convince of the flat earth theory, you know, that that, that, that there is some anecdotal evidence that the CIA was interested in seeing how populations could believe something that they ordinarily wouldn't. Wow. So I think you might be right. There might be some sort of, whether it's an organic movement from like I call the TikTok uh, school of history, or if it's something more nefarious, like let's really muddle the waters with the mud flood so that all legitimate inquiry is just kind of made silly. But yeah, you know, and I don't even address that in the book, even in the, the section on the critics of this. I really tried to focus on just a kind of taking readers on a kind of story from, well, who talked about this before Plato? What did Plato say? Because very few people read those dialogues. They just read a Wikipedia entry that says what Plato said. But if you really read it, it's it's not at all written like any other Greek mythological story. It's not allegorical. And he disclaims the story by saying every word of this is true. And it's vouched for by Solon, who is a real person. And, of course, the story comes from, you know, Egypt, which is important because it was the Egyptians at the Temple of Sais that told Solon around the year 560, let's say, in his middle age, look, there's this story that we've preserved as the inheritors of this event that you Greeks don't know about because we write things in stone and you don't. And so when bad things happen, you have to come to us. That's what they say. Right. And so that's what Solon was doing there. And so when people say, well, what does the Giza plateau have to do with the land? It's like the, the story of Atlantis comes from Egypt. You know, the Greeks transmitted it to the West, but it doesn't originate in Greece. So right off the bat, logically, you know, it, there's too much chain of custody to just claim Plato invented it and he created a very convenient backstory because let's presume he did that. Well, then we have a problem because Plato put the date at 9,600 BC, which mainstream science would basically date plus or minus, let's say 200 years as the beginning of the end of the ice age and the Holocene period. So how did he know in 360 BC when Plato wrote his dialogues that the ice age ended in 9,600 BC? And that it was precipitated by a heavenly body that fell to earth and burned everything upon it. That That's a hell of a guess for yeah. an allegory. <laughs> yeah. You know? Right. And so right there, I tell people, like, let's just cut through this bullshit that he made this up. Because he made two guesses that are frankly impossible. And so it was with Edgar Cayce and other clairvoyants who well, made these, at the time, 1930s, wild claims that people were like, the yeah. pyramid was built in 10,390. Like, what, what are you talking about? But yeah. then it's like, you get to the 90s and the 80s, and it's like, well, you've got Robert Bolval's theory or hypothesis that 
if you look at the processional alignment, where do the three pyramids line up with the constellation Orion? 10,450 BC. It's like, oh, that's a good guess, Mr. Casey, who had a sixth grade education, no working knowledge while he wasn't in trance of Egyptology or any historical subject. That's a hell of a guess. Well, and also, you know what? There, well, and I was just going to say, you know what else is a great guess? Edgar Casey in 1932 said, you know, there used to be a river system that originated at the Nile, crisscrossed through Central Africa, was as large as the Amazon and emptied into the Atlantic Ocean near the Congo end of the country. That's what Edgar Casey said. Now, people probably just filed that away and were like, well, whatever, you know. <laughs> well, okay, sure, Mr. Casey. Well, in 1986, you know, space shuttle imaging radar determined there's an enormous Amazon River-sized, you know, subterranean river that had its origin at the Nile headwaters and emptied into the Atlantic Ocean near Cameroon. And it's like, okay, that's an important data point, not to mention the thousands of medical readings where he could diagnose Mark without seeing Mark, and then Mark would go to an actual oncologist and they would find the tumor exactly where this man in a trance said it was, which lends validity to his, you know, other claims. And not to mention that Harvard, Stanford, Princeton all sent medical psychiatrists and doctors to analyze this man. And all of them were trying actively to debunk him. And they all had to admit, we actually do not understand this. But this man has an ability to non-locally perceive things with a 95% accuracy rate. And it's like, okay, that's a channeler I'm interested in using instead of a TikToker that says, you know, uh, I had a past life in Atlantis, which to me is not invalid. It's just I wanted to show people that, you know, non-local forms of perception were legitimate. You could go to Stanford and get a degree in it right now with Dean Radin at the Department of Noetics. It's provable. Right. It's just very, you have to be very careful how you use these sources. I just use them to fill in and add what I call, you know, the visions, like a snapshot. Because some of these clairvoyants provide images of the reality in, like, HD color of what it would have been like to live there, whereas Plato and others, they paint a rough picture of the dimensions of the city, let's say, or the landmass or the culture, but they don't provide, like, a vivid image of exactly what, let's say, politics were like and what people were wearing and what the drama and the language was like for that. I had to go to the clairvoyance and it became just its own kind of beast after that, that really just obsessed me. And I became so fascinated in saying, seeing just, you know, how believable this was Yeah, without any fantastical elements, you know, like, explanations in natural sciences for what we would consider magical or fantastical things. It's just a more advanced physics, a more advanced chemistry, levitational technology to, you know, reverse. Now more than ever, people are, are warmed up and open to these ideas, you know? And I think the, the notion that someone like Edgar Cayce could bring forth actual evidence and factual information from this non-local sort of perception 
it's it's slowly becoming, as you pointed out, something that major schools are giving degrees in. But to bring it back right. to you know our quick little Tartaria tangent and how I sure. kind of stumbled upon your work, you know, I I was almost like motivated to really look into what was hidden when I started seeing mm-hmm. a lot of these Tartaria posts. People would show photographs and say, look at this photograph, yada, yada, yada. And yeah. what I found really interesting is when I went on and did my own research, there are all these stone structures that nobody talks about. They don't talk about right. them in these photographs. One is the background of my computer home screen, and it's one that mm. I found. I've never seen it in any books, but it's a mm. stone shaped like a giant bird, and it's oriented towards the west on mm. the equinoxal line so that it aligns with the equinox summer or spring or fall. Is that sure. the solstice? Am I, th- am I getting those two confused? Either way, uh, mm-hmm. it's I always do that. It's aligned, and you know it's just one of many megaliths that have gone right. pretty much ignored. A Dighton Rock, the Newport Tower, the chambers, right. the stone chambers. So I started thinking like, where do these fit into the larger picture? There, there's obviously mm. correlative uh, evidence in other parts of the world. Asia, Europe has evidence of these types of sure. structures. And I thought to myself, well, if Atlantis was this culture that was destroyed, the diaspora would have spread out in a circle away from the Atlantic Ocean or the Atlantic Center where Atlantis theoretically was. And go figure, you have all this evidence for a similar kind of culture, at least in the form of the stone structures. So that made me think, could Francis Bacon writing New Atlantis and these other guys Mm -hmm. of his time period have had foreknowledge of what they were going to find when they hit the East Coast? You know, it's it's a little bit... That's really interesting that, you know, what you just said there, because... When the conquistadors, you know, from Spain and Portugal and later the English and other Europeans started to get to North America, that really in the book, as I kind of show the chronology of like, you know, the story of Atlantis, kind of like everything learned kind of fell into decline at the end of the Roman Empire, dark ages. And then it really got picked up again during this age of exploration because they started to think like, is this that place Plato was talking about? And, you know, in a weird way, that was the most difficult chapter to write because they were correct and they were incorrect. And and I guess the best way to explain that without spending like two hours is this. I just take it on faith, but I'll explain why I think that having through way of a story he got from the Egyptians through Solon, what I would call the final destruction. When Atlantis, the culture, was reduced to a large and then two smaller islands where I would argue the Azores Basin is. And I have a very good reason for saying that. He also says that. He says in front of the Straits of Gibraltar. So most people think, well, that's the only source that talks about Atlantis, so that's the whole story. But as Edgar Casey explained, you know, this culture, which he also put as being destroyed in a final cataclysm around 10,000 BC, 
it itself had actually endured for almost 80,000 years before that. And so the default state of humanity, contrary to our timeline, was Atlantis. That actually we are a weird aberration on the timeline. Because according to Edgar Cayce, it wasn't always, I mean, think about how different our culture has been in the last 200 years. You know, like if somebody asked in the future, what was America like from beginning to end? It's like, oh, they walked around with horses and muskets. Or it's like, no, I heard they had rockets that landed. You know, that's in, you know, 250 years we've achieved that. Imagine if a culture on some even like theoretical level, geographically, had been there had been inhabitants for 80,000 years on what Casey said was at first, basically what we call today the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which is still the largest mountain range in the world. It's just underwater now. But if you raise sea levels a thousand or you lower sea levels a thousand feet, a lot of that is a continent that would be exposed. Just like the Caribbean would have been basically a landlocked area around Cuba. You can actually see a trace of a land bridge. And of course, they found a sunken city off the coast of Cuba 20 years ago that just nobody talks about. So for Casey, it was basically like a primordial place that the origins of civilization, you know, contrary to what we would believe would be getting in the Middle East, let's say in Sumer and Ur and this kind of thing. Casey said, actually, there were five kind of explosions of civilization in different regions of the world that created basically the five races, roughly speaking. And he said the red race, using the terms of the 1930s, Native Americans, and he specifically identified the Iroquois as descendants of the original Atlantean race. He said the red race incarnated on this continent that stretched basically from the Gulf of Mexico all the way to Portugal, you know? And he said, because of two huge destructions, one at 50,000 BC, one at 28,000 BC. So you're talking enormous time spans. That larger continent was eventually fractured into five islands that were huge. And then finally three by the time post 28,000 BC. So the story Plato's telling is the third version or iteration of this vastly ancient culture that probably changed races, changed hands, changed. I mean, how many governments did they have in 80,000 years, if that's even possible? So I just try to focus on like, well, if you take the final iteration, the famous one of the island of Atlantis, which is still a large island twice as big, say, as England, depending on how you interpret Plato's account. But I could show you what I think is the remnants of it at the bottom of the Azores Basin, and it's about twice the size of England. You know, a lot of people were like, maybe this is Atlantis when they found North America, you know, and one famous Spanish Jesuit, or he wasn't a Jesuit, actually, that's a different one, but one famous Spanish author who wrote the history of the Indies and the Spanish Conquest um, Gomorra, he thought that like we've come to Mexico and they strangely have these words that we can't explain in the Yucatan, like optal, you know, and he's like, that's half of Atlantis. And he was correct in that. 
But it wasn't that he had found Atlantis. He had found a diasporic offshoot because in Edgar Casey's account, they actually had foreknowledge through a variety of means that you can read about in the book of this impending catastrophe. And Casey said they went three places primarily. And this wasn't just like the day of when the comet's in the air, like let's get in the canoe. This was like hundreds of years before they went to Giza and they built the pyramid as a final redoubt against a coming catastrophe. That's what Edgar Casey said. And actually, actually what medieval Arabic accounts that people discredit say that there's zero chance Edgar Casey could even get in translation in 1932 that are hard for me to find. Well, but, not to mention Edgar Casey was someone who was devoutly Christian and, and right. probably the Bible was the most books he's he'd read. I don't know if he, he probably read a lot of medical stuff after no, he didn't. Wow. In fact, I I read as all the biographies I could find of him. And according to all witnesses and his family, when one doctor searched his house, the only books he found anything, right? were romance novels <laughs> and the Bible and the newspaper. Right. Okay. That's what it was. And I remember you he wrote about the, this Plato. strict German doctor who was like, no, I will find Casey. He's a yeah. liar. <laughs> Hugh, Hugo Munsterberg from Harvard. Yeah. He took a trip on a train, you know, in the twenties, all the way out to Hopkinsville. And he said, I'm, there's been all too much written about you. Because the New York Times was writing front page articles about this man who could cure people without seeing them. And, you know, it, that was a newspaper of record. It's not like the New York Times today, the newspaper propaganda. If something came out in 1920 in the New York Times, like their fact checking was, was quite serious. Mm. You know, and so Casey was on the front page and Munsterberg at Harvard was a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And he's like, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to find a bunch of bookmarked medical almanacs. And there's some sort of sleight of hand. And he lived with him. And then he met up with this other guy, Dr. Ketchum, who was a, I think a Stanford or Princeton doctor who was living with Casey in the same town, because he's like, I use this guy to cure some patients that I can't even cure. And he has a 99% accuracy rate. And so Munsterberg interviewed Ketchum and he's like, no, look, this is true. I didn't believe it either, but this guy is actually doing this. And this Atlantis topic didn't come out until like halfway through Casey's career where right. people started asking him about certain like psychological conditions. And he'd say, well, this is a result of this thing you did in your past life in Rome, or this is a result of a betrayal you experienced in the third destruction of Atlantis. And people are like, what are you, <laughs> what are you talking about? But then certain people started to really press him. Like they would get a group together of people like you and me. And he would go into this hypnagogic trance on his couch, which took a long time. And then he would, his heart rate would slow to near coma rate. And then his voice would kind of change and he would say, ready for questions. And you had to be very careful how you brought him out of the coma like state because he could die, you know? So he had to be medically supervised on the way in and on the way out. And in his own explanation, that was his way of accessing what he called the super conscious mind or the Akashic records. Right. 
And Akasha in Sanskrit, I think it's interesting because Akasha in Sanskrit means ether. So it's almost like the cosmic, you know, ethernet, you know, which he claimed was a kind of permanent record. You know, some people have suggested it's the Van Allen belts or this or that. I don't know. And this kind of takes us to a a good point to pause for a moment, because, you know, a lot of people, especially getting into this realm of newer alternative thought, they're like, well, how can everything just fit so well together? Like, it's all like too good to be true. And, you know, the conspiracy theory community for worse or for better was very much populated by Christian dominant ideations and Mm. that has cast a lot of doubt on the new age or the the pagan or the metaphysical right and i think it's kind of interesting to take that out of it looking at casey Mm -hmm. someone who existed before that kind of culture blossomed and think about how from this lens these pieces of spirituality and metaphysical information are actually leftovers from this Atlantean cataclysm. And that's why they're found in different cultures, Mm. but they resemble each other. It's not that, you know, it's just all too good to be true. It's that there's a story, an origin, a common origin that these ideas share that we have been either made to forgot or accidentally forgot. I tend to think it's more of a process of being made to forgot, you know, Mm. and that kind of goes back to this point we were just making about the Atlantean diaspora and and the settlers, for lack of a better term, of of the New World, the conquistadors and them, they had this idea of what they were finding, and it's contributed to this suppression of things like mounds, what's been found in the mounds, megaliths that don't fit into the sort of accepted you know, explanations. So mm-hmm. this bigger picture is starting to build here. And Ignatius Donnelly, I'm glad we brought him up at the beginning because he's someone who, I, be- I believe Henry O'Brien also is someone around this time period who had an Irish descent and they were kind of mm-hmm. finding connections between Ireland and Atlantis. The Tuatha mm-hmm. de Dinan are talked a lot right. about in this respect. Now you're telling me the Iroquois have a a connection. It's not far-fetched at all, considering there's actually common origins between the Algonquin languages and the Celtic languages. There's a common linguistic origin. That's interesting. I actually didn't know that. Well, and you know, what I did is basically, and that's very well said, you know, because I think that is the main confusion that I was really trying to you know, and again, it's no offense to people that are obsessed with, say, like the reshot structure, because it's a shiny object that looks quite superficial. And I talk about it in the book quite superficially, like the circular city capital. But people are still stuck in this, like, where's the circular city? And it's like, even in like, forget the clairvoyant evidence. Let's look exactly at what Plato said. Plato said it was a subcontinental island that had dominion over the other islands around it confirmed by Casey that from which you could traverse the ocean, which was navigable and reach the whole of the opposite continent on the other side of the true ocean. So how the hell did the ancient Greeks by way of Egypt know about North America? Well, again, look through 
you know, I mean, one thing I should say that I never made into the book is when people say there's a lot of evidence like of Phoenician colonization in Brazil thousands of years ago in the Bronze Age, you know, the Romans burned when they burned Carthage, they burned the library to the ground. So all the records of Phoenician travel are gone or they're in the Vatican, but they're gone for right. us. And the Great so, Lakes, too. There's the there's Carthaginian or Phoenician like uh, or sacrificial Atlantean. altar stones in the Great Lakes. Or Atlantean. And actually, I've got an interesting take on that, on the 3,000 mines of copper that disappeared into thin air in the Great Lakes, in the Lake Superior region, yeah. But, you know, like you said, it's like, well, it's not like I said, like Ignatius Donnelly, there's a quote, I wish I had it pulled up, but he says it so well. He goes, he goes, look at it. You know, if you Google or if you go through the book and, you know, use the search function for look at it, you know, and it's such a beautiful quote. He's like an Atlas mountain at the mouth of the Mediterranean, you know, an Aztec people that come from Aklan, an Atlantic Ocean. You know what I mean? He's like, how much more do you need to look at this and say, like, hey, maybe linguistically these are actually all remnant cultures and what Casey and the clairvoyance did was not just tie it all together in a way that I couldn't do without their evidence, but they added the kind of substantiation to certain claims that these groups of people were in possession of high technology. Right. Because as a historian, like I'm aware of the critique of, well, how, how, where are you getting this high technology flying machines and all of this as applies to Atlantis? And the key to that was Casey, but also a person that came before Edgar Casey, which is the weirdest source in the book, the Frederick Oliver, who's a 17 year old kid living on the California frontier in 1881, who himself was not an Egyptologist, an expert in any of these subjects. He was a 17-year-old miner living under Mount Shasta who claimed to have been told through clairaudience to write another person's past life in the year 11,160 BC on the principal Atlantean island of Poside. Yeah. And it becomes a 400-page book that's never published in his lifetime called a dweller on two planets that he never made money off that kind of ruined his own reputation in town. People thought he was a weirdo. His family thought he was weird. He gained nothing from it. And yet again, when most people talk about that book, they've never read it. I read that book 10 times, every word of it 10 times to make sure everything I said about that and you know, it has like a whole chapter in my book, because if you read his account of what life was like in 11,160 BC, and then you follow how he describes basically the this, this same plot as the f- feature franchise Star Wars. The only problem is uh, it's 
you know, 90 years before the franchise was created. And, and he's talking about... And at least a couple decades before sci-fi is even really a thing. I mean, yeah, some sci-fi authors guy, were alive, but they weren't really writing no, that kind of I, stuff yet. And I had a guy, some, some asshole on Facebook, you know, and I never engage with these people unless, you know, they're polite with me, but just some complete moron who was like, yeah, but I mean obviously he's copying Jules Verne. And I was like, show me where in 20,000 leagues under the sea, theoretical Atlantean physics is described. That's internally coherent. Show me where, you know, the chemistry and the mining process in the Lake Superior, Great Lakes region using Atlantean drills was described in it. Like, well, not just that. I mean, I'm so glad you did read that book as many times as you did, because I also have a dweller on two planets. And it was a like weird book, weird. And when I first saw it, I was kind of like, what is going on in this book? I didn't yeah. even buy it at first because it was so indecipherable. But it is one of the things that you pulled forth out of that is the amazing predictions, if you could call them that, because he wasn't necessarily predicting anything. Right. But just the way technology is being described in his time period eerily resembles yes. what we have now. One great example that right. everyone knows is a cell phone. He talks about yeah. cell phones in he other does. words, right? How, how does he describe this device? Yeah. No, and he, it's not even cell. And like he doesn't, he skips like the razor and the flip phone and <laughs> right. goes straight to like iPhone 10. <laughs> right. They're and already holographic. A, yeah. And he calls it a name. N A I M because mm -hmm. and he you know what's weird is that in the beginning of the book, whoever he's channeling this person called Philos, that's using this 19th century boy to tell his story. He has a glossary of all the terms in the book, and a lot of people just kind of skip over that. But what's really weird is if you look at the words he used to describe the university or the flying machines, or the cell phones, or just the general words. There's like 80 Atlantean language words that he, or Poseidian words from that island that he uses. And, you know, if you compare those words to words from, from Yucatec or Basque, which are separated by the Atlantic Ocean, you know, the Pyrenees Mountains region and the Yucatan, both of which were places, along with Giza, that Edgar Cayce specifically said the Atlanteans fled before and during the destruction. Then it becomes really eerie, you know, because he has names for people like Zalm, Mainin, Lalix, Anzime. And so I went to the Center of Basque Studies and I looked at like a modern list and older lists of like, first names in the Basque language from the Basque country. And they're like, he's using Basque names, but it's like, he didn't have a Basque dictionary in right. 1881 in Mount Shasta, California. It's like, do you know what I mean? And so, and then there are other similarities too, like even his description of, there's a sentence that's quite interesting and I title one of the chapters over this, and he's describing the Atlantean science, which is twinned with its philosophy and religion because they follow what they call the law of one, not the new age law of one, but the idea of like 
almost like hermetic correspondence, but like different. And basically he said, there was this phrase called axte incal axtuke moon. And you go, okay, well, what the hell does that mean? And he translates it and he says, you know, to understand incal is to understand all things, whatever. And you go, well, what's incal? Well, incal was the sun, the physical sun for them, which was their God. But it wasn't like a deity, like anthropomorphized, you know, deity. It was like, no, that thing is a conscious being that gives life and evolution to all things on earth. And he explains like how that works. And it's like, it's so beyond the ability of a 17 year old kid to make up an internal language that has parody with ex- like extant languages that Edgar Casey himself said were remnant of the Atlantean primordial language that you just go like, look, the only people that would think this is made up are like, if you treated this as anything else, you know, like if you just move this timeline from the scary 10,000 years ago, that's too long to like ancient Greece, people would be like, wow, these clairvoyants really work because they piece together an ancient Doric language and, you know, Smithsonian exhibit on Edgar Casey. But because they're talking about a time that is utterly lost because of the rate of decay, you know, of all these materials, except for megalithic structures, I think that's the part that just goes over people's heads because they can't imagine that in 14,000 years from today, there likely will be no trace of this conversation, you, me, America, or anything that we've achieved right now because we don't even store things in physical stone monuments except like the Hoover Dam has a star map of its date of construction. So in 14,000 years, maybe maybe somebody might find that and go like, oh, like they were primitive people that like built a dam, I guess. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in to this episode of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We're going to take a brief, brief moment to thank our sponsors, the Hit Kit, the number one way to get lit. Use the promo code CRAZY. Go and check out their shop on Instagram. Just type in the Hit Kit and check out all the great gadgets my friend Garrett has available for purchase. Get one now and upgrade your everyday carry. Whatever you're smoking on, whether it's a blunt, a joint, a spliff, throw it in your Hit Kit right there next to your lighter and you're never going to miss it again. All right, and another great sponsor of ours is Oregonite. That is Oregonite from the great state of Oregon, made by Isaac Lazell. He's been a guest on this show not too long ago, talking about the wonderful benefits of having Organite in your home. So please go and check it out. Use the promo code MFTIC and save at checkout. You also help support the show by doing that. So go over there. Get yourself a nice organite pyramid for yourself or for a friend or a loved one and help harmonize with the energy that is all around you at every moment. All right, now let's go over to our dynamic ad sponsors, which of course I have no control over. Thank you so much for being here. And if you want the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast ad free, be sure to go and sign up to support the show on Patreon or Substack today. For as low as $5, you get three episodes a week, 
and bonus episodes, some that have never been heard on the free side of the podcast. So don't miss out. Go over there right now and sign up to support the show. Thank you. And uh, we'll be right back after this brief break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. Have you ever heard of the the Clock Mountain? I don't know its full Mm-mm. official name. So apparently, and I think Jeff Bezos is like the key founder funder of this idea. Mm. But they're essentially coring out the inside of a mountain and putting a giant clock inside of it. And it's essentially going to be this like thing that exists for theoretically millions of years and, and holds information about humanity. Obviously people are like, Oh, Jeff Bezos is doing it. I don't know. But right after the Georgia Guidestones get blown up, I gotta say, I gotta say, you know, I've never, I always say until I've met somebody, I don't right. talk shit about them. And to be honest, without Jeff Bezos and Amazon, I wouldn't have been able to self-publish a best-selling book. Really? I mean, no. I got to give him credit for that. Yeah, it's one you of know, the unique um, ironies of our time. And I talk about it on the show because some authors are like, yeah, don't yeah. buy my book on Amazon, buy it from my website. And other authors are like, no, Amazon's helped me incredibly. And they're well, so I'll grateful. You, I'll <laughs> tell you straight up. I had two literary agents. They shopped it to 20 publishers, both of them competing against each other. All the publishers said, eh, these kinds of books don't sell. Nobody cares about this anymore. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> and if we do contract with you, we'll give you a dollar per $22 book you sell. So it's like, yeah, who's the evil corporation in this? You know, like Random House, Penguin, or is it Jeff Bezos because he, you know, got jacked up and has a billion dollars and it's kind of, kind of creepy. I'll admit, you know, but I mean, look, everything has a double-edged sword, you know? And I think, well, and he's a man behind in front of this huge machine. Right. So it's like, you Mm. know, blaming Napoleon for his, you know, it's like, they're not, it's, it's the way civilizations move, you know, in these grand steps. So, but I, go ahead. Well, that's really interesting though, because, it reminds me of another subplot that I don't spend too much time on, but you know, for those familiar with the Edgar Casey ancient history readings, you know, he claims the Atlanteans themselves did exactly what you just said. 
that they created three halls of records or three sets of records that they placed in a principal hall in Giza underneath what he claimed was between the Nile River and the Sphinx, accessed via a tunnel under the Sphinx. And then in other parts, one in Yucatan and one, it's hard to say people, some people say Bahamas, some people say the reading really suggests the Azores, that there's a temple down there. But in in any case, he said that because somebody said to him, how can we prove this, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt in case like nobody believes you in the future from your transcripts and stuff like, do you have any smoking gun proof that still exists on planet earth in physical form that this culture left. And he said, yes, but he said to access the hall of records, humanity's consciousness must evolve beyond way beyond where it is today, because he says you will not be able to pass the guardians who were assigned it until your consciousness reaches this level which I interpret as a technology because other channelers like Dolores Cannon, who wasn't a channeler, she was more of a hypnotic regression therapist, but in a few of her readings, which I don't fully include in the book, but I later discovered where she's regressing some people back. One of her clients was a person who created this like electrostatic consciousness barrier around this temple under the Sphinx. And then when the client was regressed to waking life, she's like, what did I say? Like, I don't know anything. I don't, I don't know anything about Egypt or Giza. What did I say? And Dolores Cannon was like, you were one of the record keepers after the third destruction of Atlantis. And it's like, again, that's a weird, like, I mean, Dolores Cannon is a very vetted hypno regression therapist. She didn't just make up shit. Like she had clients that came to her for healing and stuff. And she created an entire school that people can go to and study this method she used. So when I started seeing that, I was like, I think the guardians, Casey was saying, could have been physical statues, which certain Arabic sources mentioned that there are actual statues that are like technology, like almost like droids or something that are still kind of latently active in, in keeping whoever gets close to this. And I, again, I, I don't have any proof of this. It's As just, you multiple sources have said that there are some sort of guardians not living, but that there are some sort of things that will not let you get into that hall of records until you have reached a much higher plane of consciousness where you're not going to use that knowledge for evil. Stick with me here for a second, but, but I'm going to, I'm, I love what you just I don't know said. If it's like IG 88 from star Wars. Like, you no, know, no, no, no. <laughs> I love I what you what just said. I think, I think, Stick with me. Maybe it's not so much Star Wars or more Indiana Jones. Maybe these crystal skulls that have been found around the the globe. Some people, actually a guy I've talked to on the show, Neil Guar, he does this like conference where they bring all the crystal skulls Mm -hmm. that are available to a room and meditate with them. What if it's a sort of conscious or mental technology that when the collective consciousness gets to a certain point, these skulls do something that unlocks? No, and it's actually, I've thought about that. I think, well, Casey was asked, like, what is in this room? Mm. And he said a physical record of the beginnings of man's incarnation on earth to the final destruction and the emigration to the Pyrenees mountains. That was literally what he said in the reading. 
that it's the real story of humanity. How it was encoded, I don't know. He doesn't say that. The other thing he said was that there's artifacts like tools, musical instruments from Atlantis still there in this room. But you're right. I think it absolutely would have been. And, you know, you're, it's funny you said that because in the one Dolores Cannon reading, she actually describes somebody bringing a large crystal to this storehouse mm-hmm. that was encoded with information. And again, it's like, I think it's funny that some of the most like staunch materialist people, are, Oh, you believe in crystals? It's like, bro, your radio and your car wouldn't work if it didn't have a crystal in it. It's your computer would like, use I don't even think these people understand how technology works. Like you actually need physical things. Like a computer is just a collection of minerals that are arranged differently. Like it's not like a Martian gave it to you as a iPhone. Like, It uses still these things that, you know, we have to dig for and lithium and this and that. And it's like, yeah, a crystal is a part of transmitting messages. It's always been. So why wouldn't they use a crystal? And why wouldn't they use something that would be universally understood instead of like a proprietary solid state hard drive that you couldn't even open in 15,000 years, let's say, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a big reason why people have this suspicion about our world today and whether there have been advanced technologies in the past, because we're, we're living in this digital uh, proprietary Mm -hmm. patent based world. That's it's, it's just corrupting itself. It's this planned obsolescence of materials where your light bulb only lasts five months instead of five decades, like it used to, you know, and it's, And, you know, it's so interesting you say that because I was just thinking about this for another conversation I'm having, because my my specialty, believe it or not, is United States foreign policy. That's what I that's what I actually have my master's degree in. And I was invited to talk about that. But you just reminded me and it is relevant that that way of thinking like nobody would build a structure to last that long, because like you said, we don't. You know, we build things with cement that is going to be gone in 150 years in most cases. And similarly, you know, the idea that you could have a peaceful or at least not perfect, because in Edgar Cayce's Atlantis, there are dark factions that are working against the, you know, children of the law of one. But that, that you could have the persistent, enduring timelines that he says, like, that it only blew up three times in 90,000 years, because it's like, how many times have we almost blown up the world in like, since we've had nuclear weapons more than that, you know, uh, how many people have we killed in the 20th century in world war one and world war two, you know, probably more than died in 4,000 years of Atlantean history. If you listen to Casey's readings, you know, where there were evil people, that were analogous to the say world economic forum or the Nazis today doing weird shit, but that there was an equally powerful, extraordinarily powerful group of kind of sages or Jedi that he describes identically to the Jedi, which I find interesting who were really good at keeping them kind of at bay, you know, well, and that we don't have anything like that, really. I mean, we've got, depending on your views, we've got the BRICS nations attempting to say, like, hey, chill out with this endless war hegemony. But there is no kind of enlightened council 
that we can categorically as a race say like, oh, those people are good. And, and you can choose, you know, because it's like, I think the problem with this subject is it's so foreign to us to imagine that there could, we're so jaded in our 20th century, 21st century that all world leaders are corrupt. All media lies. Everything is just bullshit. And I would agree with that for the most part. And that's why shows like this are so important, but that you could actually have like these benevolent technologies where people were living over a thousand years or, you know, living in harmony with nature, using clean energy, using, and again, I'm not one of these, we need to get rid of fossil, they're not even fossil fuel, get rid of petroleum. Let me be clear on that uh, before Rockefeller changed the definition at that meeting. But, you know, this idea that we could potentially live in harmony for long periods of time is so against the grain of the 20 and 21st centuries that I think that's another big hurdle. Like, you mean to tell me that this civilization lasts? It's like, yeah, I mean, why not? You know, look at Chinese dynasties, how long they've lasted before communism. Well, and this leads us to, you know, a really, really interesting frontier. And I'm glad you, you have that optimism. And I do I do believe in that, especially when I talk to folks like yourself consistently. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big reason why people want to listen to these kind of podcasts, because it's uplifting to know that there are alternatives, there are solutions potentially that are not being explored on a official or mainstream level. And Believe right. it or not, understanding our history helps us not repeat the same mistakes we had in the past. And as fantastical yeah. as it may be to think we can learn about millions and millions of years ago, I think we can. Mm. I think that's kind of the really, really important and significant inheritance that we've gotten from our ancestors that, uh, you know, speaking for the collective, we might be you know, taking that for granted at this point in time in the 20 and 21st century. You know, I, I don't know that I us agree. as individuals do, but as a collective, we certainly seem to be. And, and that's distressing and definitely pushing more people to to learn about this kind of stuff. Now, when it comes yeah. to when it comes to this faction of Jedi versus maybe mm. the Sith of the Atlantean yeah. world. I Sons think Sons of Belial, right? Called them, and well, and people in which the is cons- interesting itself that expression, you know, because Belial is the Hebrew derivation of the Phoenician Baal mm. or the Chaldean Bel, but they all signify wickedness thematically, you know, and many biblical names in Hebrew like Jezebel. Well, let me ask like this. you this. It's like Mikael, you know, like, I mean, my name is a derivation of who is like that particular Elohim. Jezebel is like, you know, another reference to a Elohim who Baal was a, you know, I would argue extraterrestrial or whatever power, powerful one, as the Bible describes him, who in Edgar Casey's account, he only, I, this took forever, you know, I really could only find one single time where Edgar Casey identified that Baal or Beelzebub or Bali Lal, as he alternatively calls him, was actually a historical character. But he makes like a hundred references to the followers, the acolytes, that he calls the sons of Belial, which is a biblical term. You know, that word appears in the Bible, the sons of Belial. And 
yeah, they were basically like the Sith. I mean, they had an emperor. They had like a Vader character. They had their stormtroopers, basically. I mean, it wasn't space-based, although there are very vague illusions where people asked him. And again, this is in the 30s before UFOs were even in the public consciousness. So it's quite interesting what he said about that. But he does allude to visitors, you know, from the outer worlds. That's what he describes it. Now, they didn't have a direct, absolute role. I'm, I've never made the claim that extraterrestrials dominated and built Atlantis. But just like in documented history, they've visited, they've influenced probably certain races. They've probably helped or harmed the people back then, just like they did now, just like they do now. But it's like, it's still a human story. It's just these humans are so advanced technologically that they might as well be extraterrestrial in some of their abilities. You know, like, I mean, Casey even had this very detailed reading on the power source, you know, this six sided crystal called the two oy stone which was responsible for the second destruction of Atlantis that was so powerful that in its malfunction, uh, which it was tuned incorrectly, and it was always the subject of this, like, almost like how the rebels need to get the Death Star plans, you know, to stop it. It existed, but it could be used as a power source. It was neutral. Like it was just a crystal that absorbed what he called stellar energy and solar energy. And it was this enormous crystal in a ref, in a in a dome, in an enormous dome that like a lighthouse would pull back and gather energy and store it in underground kind of energy substations. And he said it could be used to power the civilization, but it could also be used in this like scalar weapon or directed energy weapon fashion, I guess you would call it. He didn't have the words to use back in the thirties before this technology was rediscovered, I would argue. But at one point it was accidentally, according to Casey overtuned and it fractured the principal, you know, Island it was on in the second destruction in the year 28,000 BC. So even that timeline, I mean, that's incredible that we had a technology akin to the Death Star in 28,000 BC, that this idea that everyone on Earth was a hunter-gatherer um, and a knuckle-dragging, you know, beast from Quest for Fire, it's just not borne by the evidence. And also, it's not to say that, just like today, like we still have cannibals in Papua New Guinea, and then you've got Elon Musk and his rockets. So if you were to take a snapshot of 2021, it's like, do you pick that or do you pick the rockets to say that's the level of tech? You know, it's the same with Atlantis. They had their version of SpaceX and directed energy weapons, and they still had primitive people roaming the earth. It's not like you have to, it's a fallacy in history to kind of oversimplify the past and forget that it would have the same nuance of today. Like not every son of Belial was incarnately evil. Like some were kind of just like allured by the, the the temptations of the dark side you know and well and it would be it was like a political thing yeah it, wasn't it would like be like a hundred years evil, from now good it's like you know very nuanced and casey's story is very nuanced because 
There's a woman, for example, who asked him, who was I in a past life? And he goes, well, you were this pioneer woman on the Fort Dearborn where Chicago is today. And your name was May Umbor. And she's like, okay. And he goes, let's just say you got what you wanted from men, from, you know, Indians, from anything. You were a pioneer woman who got what she wanted. And the lady was like, okay, like I was, you know, sleeping with a lot of people. He's like, you just got what you wanted. You know, he was a Christian and he's like, what may wanted may got. And then he regresses her or he regresses himself and tells her story as she's listening with the stenographer. He's like, then you were in the times of Rome. And he just casually names extremely uncommon Roman emperors and prelates that lived in real, in reality that actually I checked did live at that time. How did he guess that? Then he goes, oh, and by the way, you were a temple priestess in the children of the law of one during the second destruction time period, the second version of Atlantis around 29,000 BC. And your name was, you know, Asha or something like that. And he said, in that temple, you weren't really a great person. You were a child of the law of one in the temple of light, but you had 13 different children with 13 different daddies from the sons of Belion. But you were so good at your job that nobody could get rid of you because you were this enlightened priestess, but you still had this dark side tendency. And so his story is the story of how in the Atlantean saga of Casey and Frederick Oliver, who just calls them different names, but it's the same saga. And it's the Star Wars saga. I hate to say this. And it's two possibilities. Lucas read these books and never cited them, which is plagiarism, or they're all conscious, like Jungian collective unconscious yeah. projections of reality, which I actually think is true. Well, and I've never seen George Lucas talk about Edgar Casey or Frederick Oliver's book yeah. as a source, you know? Well, I think it, it definitely fits into this Joseph Campbell idea that Lucas very much was a fan of, and Campbell was right. somebody who was looking at all of the world's myths and going back to kind of what we were talking about earlier mm -hmm. and what's been on my mind this whole conversation, you know, the world's religions, mm -hmm. the, the post or the antediluvian, you know, diaspora, so to speak. I would say post the, yeah, I would, I would say the post, I would say all the, well, all the Abrahamic faiths to me, and I don't mean to insult anybody because I used to be a Catholic and, you know, gone through many stages. I don't know. But once I discovered the Atlantean belief system from these channelings, it actually makes so much more sense. And you see how what we call today religion or spirituality are just kind of incomplete. They don't fit quite together because as Frederick Oliver describes, like you didn't need faith. Right. Prove that the sun created reality. So there was no question when the sun came up that that's as if a thing that all people on earth can look at and agree is real is silly, but, you know, spiritual worship is somehow more uh, acceptable. 
You know, I always found that funny that we all know this. Every culture can see the sun and we know it gives life to earth. And yet we make all those silly sun worshipers, you know, those, those silly primitive people, you know, and they would look at us like, well, who are you talking to? Oh, well, I can't see that person. And I, I don't know, but I definitely don't believe, you know, God. And it's like, You know, so it makes sense because our lost ancient legacy was because at the end of the book, you know, it takes a quite different turn into modern times. And it's like, well, look at all the problems in the world. You know, I'm not saying that, oh, if we all just knew the truth, we'd get, a, I mean, that's a fantasy. But knowing that we all come from a kind of much more advanced, sophisticated timeline that you know, through multiple destructions, some man-made, some natural, that was lost. It's like we should then focus instead of on killing each other in division, or maybe trying to reclaim that legacy and then enjoy it for as long as we can because there's no telling what could happen, you know, um, with a comet or some sort of other event, a failure of technology, uh, nuclear war. And I think we'd realize that particularly in the Western and North American cultures, as you mentioned, like there's a lot more similarity when the Atlantic ocean wasn't just this gap when it had these continents, subcontinents, and then finally islands. And that people had the ability to, you know, traverse and travel. It would change the whole idea of race. It would change the idea of who's the real native American. You know what I mean? Cause I mean, in Casey's story, there were people from Europe in North America 16,000 years ago, you know, that had a colony in Florida, which was a different landmass at the time. But I mean, it's like when we find these, you know, strange traces that, that, like you said, in the Grand, or I'm sorry, in the Great Lakes region, it's like Gavin Menzies thinks those are Phoenician, which, or Minoan, which itself is completely rewrites the Columbus cross the ocean story because they're at least a thousand or 2000 years older than 1500 AD, say roughly he puts them at like a thousand five hundred BC, some of these mines and they're not native American. But what's so crazy is Frederick Oliver says, actually those are Atlantean mines from the year 11,000 BC. And it, it, And again, how was he aware of that? Well, and it seems to be fitting together a little neater if we consider that these groups all came from a common area rather than the Europeans were here before in this ancient world, right? I I think it's just they're doing these mental gymnastics, and I wonder if it's because of the academia, the institutions coming from this worldview that was maintained by empires, which, Mm -hmm. you know, got their power from the priest crafts that came from that. So do you think there's any possibility that these sons of Belial from Atlantis could have existed in some way, secret society type of way and, and, and maintained a control paradigm just enough to keep people ignorant of their true origins. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, the, the kind of classic analog to the sons of Belial 
in our timeline would be the Roman Catholic Church, the Vatican, the Jesuits. They form and they they function almost identically to how Casey described the Sons of Belial function. You know, they use charisma, manipulation, coercion, deception to control large groups of people psychologically while they themselves know the reality. You know, that was a big part of the Casey subplot was like the sons of Belial were master propagandists. And in other cases, Casey finally said, because he was giving some of these readings during World War II and during the rise of Hitler. And so many people were asking him questions about that, like, what's going on over there, Mr. Casey? And he actually said that people like Hitler were reincarnations of the sons of Belial back in the 20th century to try it again. And that makes perfect sense, you know, because if reincarnation, which I believe is fairly likely to be true, just logically, it makes sense to me. I've got an argument another time I'll explain. (laughs) It's quite simple argument actually, but you know, it would make sense that like we are just, it's just the same goddamn story. You know, it's like whether it's today or it's in the third destruction, second destruction, it's like as long as we've been on planet Earth as homo sapiens with this brain capacity, which, by the way, you know, is roughly 300,000 years. So I always ask people, if you think it's crazy, well, mainstream anthropology conservatively places our brain capacity skeletal structure at 250,000 years ago. So there were people as intelligent, probably more intelligent, more physically able than you and me a quarter of a million years ago with the same earth, the same elements. And you're telling me nothing happened. They sat on their ass for 244,000 years and then magically, you know, around 4,000, 5,000 BC, they just created law, writing, the pyramids, religion, language. It's like... Well, and even still, the, the, what's that? And then, what accounts for the people in indigenous cultures who, according to academia, haven't done anything? Right? It's like, right? You know, it's yeah, this right. really weird kind of agrarian centric view of it biology, is. in a sense. And like, it is. I don't know how familiar you are with Ivan T. Sanderson, but one of the just kind of tangents. Very familiar. Okay, cool. One of the things that he was writing about that kind of fits into the Atlantis research I was doing somehow Mm. uh, was the the work with pygmies and how these Mm. groups of people were actually more advanced in a sense of evolution than your average homo sapien who had not made that technological conscious leap to become immersed in that jungle rainforest environment. And it it really kind of throws our notions upside down of like what advancement looks like over huge scales of time. You know, what if, you know, right. Going the other end of the height spectrum, these giant skeletons that we find in mounds and all over, Mm. you know, certain sites specifically here in America, tons have been found. You know, what if this represents a sort of big brother species in the chain of events where we kind of are getting smaller over time because there's certain technological advancements that come with with our brains and so forth? Well, and that's really interesting. And I at the end of the book. It's kind of a funny story. I've never told this. And I got about 
15 minutes, so maybe we'll end on this. But uh, I used to work as a security guard at a bar in Chicago. And one day I got, I had to fight another philosophy professor. It was really funny. And I beat him up and I held him down and he went to prison for attacking my staff. And I later found out, who is this guy? I won't say his name. We have since made up. And I started reading all the books in his class because I had to appear in court to get my money for the shirt he ripped and defend my, you know, takedown legally. And I won the case, you know, with my little public defender. But I had read all the books in his class. And one of the books, he was a professor at a California university, was a book called After Finitude which was a master or a PhD thesis written by a French who became the chair of philosophy at the Ecole Normale Superiore, one of the, like the Harvard of France. And it was such an eye-opening book that I had to include it kind of to justify what you just said, because this philosopher, Quentin Mayasu, he says the following, and it's really really difficult book, but I'll summarize it the best I can. It's one of the hardest books I've ever read in my life. And it's like 85 pages. He says, look, we find a fossil. Okay. And we say it's 75 million years old because we've radiocarbon dated it. And at 75 million years ago, this is what the world looked like. And this is what the dinosaur probably looked like. And this is what physics was like. And then consciousness emerged. And he presents an argument that even he and nobody to this date could answer because it's so profound, really, what he said. And he said, look, I'm not debating that radiocarbon dating can be accurate and that this is indeed probably is 75 million years old. But he goes, what does that mean? Because when you talk about consciousness emerged, let's say with, I don't know, Homo erectus or something like that. Let's just say a million years ago, the first hominid became self-aware. How you would even measure that? I don't know. But he's like, let's just pretend that a million years ago, the first hominid became human-like with the conscious perception. He's like, the whole category that we talk about, the age of the earth, the age of the dinosaurs, he goes, that's a product of the emergence of consciousness. So how can you talk about a categorically different time if that concept itself is the product of the thing it's preceding? Do you, you follow me? It's like, good yeah. question, bro. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It's, and he doesn't either. He's like, this is a problem Kant proposed with his synthesis and, you know, synthetic reason. And, you know, how can you know God if God is ineffable and, you know, reality is filtered through the senses? He uses Kantian logic, but he's like, this is a much bigger problem. Because he's like, I'm not saying that the dinosaurs didn't exist. He's like, but they could have existed in a world that's literally impossible to say anything about with authority. Like he's like, physics could have been different. There's actually no way to prove that gravity was the same or light was like, there's nothing. Cause there were no observers allegedly. 
And he's like, we just take it for granted. Like we just tell this story like, oh yeah, there's always been like a camera, you know, watching everything. And then we came on the scene and he's like, that's the stupidest thing. And yet nobody in the fucking world, excuse my language, has any kind of problem with thinking that like, oh yeah, that's just the way it is. And I was reading that book and I was like, you know, it was worth punching that guy in the face at the bar because I would have never found that, you know, and I would have never included it in the book as the kind of final, like, okay, you don't have to believe Atlantis. But then don't ever tell me what the dinosaurs were doing. In fact, don't tell me anything about anything until you can identify. And it just kind of was a nice kind of final reminder to the reader of the first quote that I opened the book with from Socrates. I know one thing, you know, that I know nothing, which itself is a tautological argument, which at the end of the day, I think everything is. And we just have to look at well, what logically resonates and where does the evidence kind of point? But will we ever know what the sons of Belial were doing? Probably not. You know, will we ever really know what people 50 years ago were doing in some boardroom? Probably not. You know, so it's kind of just like a reflection at the end. The book, it's like a trick that this whole time, you know, was this really a book about Atlantis? Or was this actually a mental exercise on how the historical discipline, you know, is quite limited? And by extension, how anything we say think is true is itself very likely not as true as you think, you know, and that goes both ways with people that say, I know exactly when Atlantis fell on this Saturday. It's like, okay, maybe, you know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But it's just as stupid to say that this is all make-believe because as we just talked about, there's a preponderance of very good evidence, you know? So that's all I got, you know, for more information, you can read, you know, the book. Yeah, absolutely, man. Bravo. Well said. And I love that point to end on, especially on a show like this where, People are seeking conclusions. They realize that the world is not what they've been told. Their whole world gets mm. turned upside down. And I think what really needs to happen is we need to get comfortable with that Socratean knowing that we don't know. And, and yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't think of a better way to, to wrap it up, you know? And I think if I had one thing to tell people, it would be, whether you're an educator or a student or anything that, that the dumbest people, well, it's, I shouldn't even say the dumbest. I just, Hey, much more poetically said than me in WB Yates, the second coming, you know, the worst are full of fiery passion and the best lack all conviction. And I absolutely believe that, that the people speaking the loudest and the people that are the most certain be very careful, you know, be very careful with anything I've said today with certainty. I've tried not to say anything with certainty. This is just what I've found, but certainly on both sides, you know, for or against any argument, you know, I think the best you can do is have a civil, polite discussion. You tell me what you think. I learned something. I tell you what I think and have found through my research. 
and we arrive at some synthesis and it moves along to the next thing, you know, but that's actually not at all how people go to school. That's not how you graduate. That's not how you get the grades and that's not how you move up in a company. We're rewarded for certainty, even if it means lying, you know, and I think that's why it's so difficult for people to even question the simplest things like the media is lying to you, Mm. you know, Mm. no, they would never do that. It's like, okay, well, here's this, this, that, no. And so for those people, you just have to go like, I don't know, man, I don't know what to tell you. Right. Right. Some people are more comfortable in that certainty until they realize that nothing's certain, but one thing's for sure, you have written an excellent book that I would love to have you back on to continue talking about because we just scratched the surface. The title yeah. is Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Ancient Legacy. And the Indeed. book is available on Amazon. You can get it in a bunch yes, of different versions. And yeah, do you have a, a website or anything else you'd like to, to promote before we get going here? Yeah, I do. I have a website. It's just my name, Michael Leflem, with the last name together at michaelleflem.com. And it's got some links to some of the sources I cite, some other articles about Atlantis, reading lists. And if you want to contact me, that's the best way. There's a contact form. And I'm always interested and I always get interesting letters and emails from just the strangest people like from all over the world. Like I've, I've been looking for that answer for 27 years and I've never seen it explained the way and thank you. And it's like, it's very nice, you know, because when you're doing anything like this for so long and putting so much time and energy into it, you never know, you know, is this just going to be a flop? Is this going to get flack? Is this going to be a hit? And, um, you know, as a self-published author, you have no help. You've got to promote. And I had to do the editing, the cover format. I had to learn how to format a book, put the pictures, get the copyright, pay this person. And you wonder like, are you crazy? Like, you know, is this even going to be worth it? And then, like I said, to my great surprise, probably halfway, five, six months in, it became the number one bestseller in the world in prehistory. And with luck, um, you know, I submitted it to Graham Hancock's book of the month club. So maybe I get a shout out from the man, you know, who was a real inspiration and mentor for so many in this field, you know, yeah. and so wildly misrepresented. And, you know, I think it's jealousy more than anything, because he was really one of the first and without him, there would probably be none of this kind of, you know, study. He really popularized this 30 years ago. And he's a great scholar and I have a tremendous respect for him and the people that came before him, like Congressman Ignatius Donnelly, friend of Abraham Lincoln, not a, you know, lightweight, he's a heavyweight politician who dedicated his life to finding evidence of Atlantis at the end of his life. It's like, you know, these are interesting people. And I think of, you know, this book as an homage to the greats and a kind of, if you're an expert, there's definitely going to be something you haven't seen. If you've only looked at clairvoyant evidence, 
There's plenty of other evidence. And if you're somebody that has absolutely no idea about what the hell we've been talking about, it's still written in a way that doesn't presume you know anything and takes you through the whole big picture. So Hmm. that's all I got. No, yeah, I second um, that. It's a great read. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And sure, I'd love to come back and we could talk about some more evidence-based, like a legal case for the legal case for Atlantis with some real interesting pictures and charts that I think even the most skeptical would find very difficult to deny. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. The pleasure is mine. You do great work. So I'd love to host you a second time and we could get into the photographs. We can get into even some Mm. of the the maps and charts. I think the Theosophical Theosophical Mm. Society put that one together. It's in in the book, but that's a weird map. Right, right. So much more to talk about. I look forward to it. And until next time, folks, go and support Michael LaFlemme. The website is linked in the description. Pick up the book and we'll see you next time. Immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Of course, Michael LaFlem can be found on Amazon. Visions of Atlantis, Reclaiming Our Lost Legacy. And I got to get myself a paperback version of the book because it's so great. I need it on my shelf. I use uh, the Kindle version to study this topic, which I presented on Tinfoil Hat past this past October. You guys may have been uh, like, oh, I heard about this before. Yes, that's because when I first read Mike's book, I really, really enjoyed it, and I wanted to share it with Tinfoil Hat because I felt like it blended well with some of the other theories that I had, and I also thought it'd be cool to introduce the topic and see how it went when Michael went on the show. Sometimes as the booker of Tinfoil Hat, I'm like, ah, I wish the guys had more time to prepare for the episodes, and they don't. They're very busy, and I understand that. So I thought, hmm, maybe if I schedule myself on the podcast, start the conversation, bring some of these ideas up, uh, it won't be so new to them when Michael joins them on the show and he can go a step further into the even deeper, deeper stuff that we didn't get a chance to talk about when I was there uh, this past October. So if you want to hear that episode, if you haven't already, that's Tinfoil Hat episode 717. And yeah, thanks folks for being here. I'm going to be having Michael back on the show soon and he is scheduled for Tinfoil Hat. So look forward to that. Uh, Where else can you get information like that? No other podcast has sneak previews for what's going to happen on such an awesome podcast like Tinfoil Hat. And of course, if you sign up on the Patreon or the Substack, you'll get all that and so much more. Uh, I am going to be interviewing Michael LaFlemme again, and that is going to go to the patrons first. Right now, there's an episode with Daniel Caulfield, about a book that he recently wrote. So if you sign up on the Patreon or the Substack right now, you can hear that episode plus tons of other episodes, bonus episodes, and a weekly show that I do with Juan from the Juan on Juan podcast. So don't miss out. That's three episodes a week, uh, all there for you on the Patreon and the Substack. You don't even need to listen to the free feed anymore. Once you're on the Patreon and the Substack, you get a completely new RSS feed, 
with no ads or anything like that. So consider it. Maybe it will change your 2024. It certainly will change mine, so consider it. And, uh, yeah, while you're at it, if you want to support the show, but you you don't have any extra money to spend, you don't want to support the show uh, financially, you can always support the show with a, with a five-star rating and review. And I will read those right here on the outro. So, yeah, I'm going to be doing that uh, here in this outro. Let's see if we have any new five-star ratings and reviews. While I'm at it, I know we had a one-time donation from past guest Hope De La Mora. Shout out to Hope. Very nice of her to send a one-time donation last week. So shout out to them. And let's see about the five-star reviews. We got a new five-star review from MSMSNENSNDN whatever that means eye-opening and mystical at the same time five stars the mystic mark is the best to ever do it interviews so many diverse guests and always lets them speak their mind freely yes i try to do my best at that and we've got some very interesting guests lined up this month so yeah i'm gonna be letting letting it fly letting the truth fly which is what we should be doing in our lives is embracing truth embracing honesty so with that folks uh consider signing up to support the show on patreon or substack the links are in the description use the promo code crazy to save 10 percent at checkout when picking up a hit kit and use the promo code mftic when checking out with organite get yourself some organite today and yeah, that's about it, folks. Thank you so much for being here. Big shout out to Michael LaFlem and immerse yourself in the moment wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface They want you confused like you never knew your purpose Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki Stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body DNA fractal, the universe within me Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati Puppet masters know the power of the mantra Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya Subliminal messages hijacking perception tricking the population with holographic projections we see through it the system is unraveling i'm astral traveling through the library of the vatican on a sacred journey i embark with the squad forever spitting truth like mark on the pod gotta know the facts never hold back because i ain't getting caught up in the soul trap i dissect the fabric of reality looking for the answers searching through the galaxy you might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head, monkeys with reptilian faces, losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away, revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My ghetto 
away I run to the nearest one See a guard knock him out Rob him for his plasma gun Hop in the ship, take the controls They highly intuitive, I figure it out easily Lift off, accelerate through a tunnel Until I see the light fly into the sky Get flanked by six F-35s facts, never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap Dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park.